0: Well, after a long time in Galatians and some other difficult series that we've looked at what we need from God, giving you a breather today in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at great hymns of our faith. Now, this is a very subjective thing. I get to choose the hymns. But I think you will agree with me through most of them. But along the way, what we're going to be doing is looking a little bit at the history of how they were written, who wrote them, and really focusing on the passages of Scripture that inspired them and caused great talents to come and move in a very real way. So this is what we'll be looking at. Now, I'm going to make reference to a song right now that is not the hymn I'm talking about itself, but. I don't remember the very first time I ever heard the song, He's Got the Whole World in His Hands. I liked it a lot because I was a kid and it was a very snappy song and it was great and wonderful. I loved it and I didn't really know what it meant, but I loved it anyway. Uh, it, it, as I grew, I came to understand the song was saying that God was in control. And even as a child, that gave me a great deal of hope to know that God was in control. As a follower of Christ, I came to learn later as I was growing a very, very big word for the meaning behind this song. Sovereignty. It is saying that God is king of the universe. It is the, the saying that, that God rules. And that also brought me comfort. But it wasn't until I really knew that the song was not just about he's got the whole world in his hands. What it was saying was that God could be trusted with my life. That the song really became deeply embedded into my heart. And I love that idea. God could be trusted with who I am and what he's doing in my life. Now, I didn't know way back then that I would later come to love even more deeply a song that spoke to this aspect of God's sovereignty. And it is my favorite hymn to this day. Bar none, this is Brother Danny's favorite hymn. And we just sang it a few moments ago. Great is thy faithfulness. Let me share with you what is my favorite hymn. Line in that hymn. My favorite verse. Pardon for sin and the peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. I love that verse. And I love this song greatly. Great is thy faithfulness. Now, it's been pointed out that there are a lot of gospel hymns written about the faithfulness and goodness of God. But for me, this particular song speaks to my heart out of its beauty and its truth, even its simplicity. Kenneth Osbeck has pointed out that a lot of hymns are written growing out of somebody's particular dramatic experience, something powerful, something Maybe harmful drew them to God. Whatever it was, uh, they had an experience that caused them to just burst. They had to tell the world. But this song was written simply as a result of the author's morning-by-morning realization that God was faithfulness. The man who wrote the lyric is Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. Uh, He was born in a log cabin in Franklin, Kentucky on July 29th. 1866. He never had high school. He never had formal training. But at the age of 16, he became the teacher in the same little school that he had gone to the elementary training at. When he was 21, he took on the the duties of associate editor of his hometown Weasley, weekly newspaper, the Franklin Favorite. Six years later, in a revival meeting led by Doctor H. C. Morrison. Chisholm gave his heart to Christ. He received by faith the salvation that was his. And Morrison was so impressed by this young man that he invited him to come to Louisville and take over as office director and business manager of a publication that Morrison ran. Later he became a Methodist minister. But he had to retire fairly quickly because of health issues. And so he began a journey of selling insurance. Um, And he did that until he retired in 1953. And he spent the rest of his life in the home for the aged in Ocean Grove, New Jersey. Now, Chisholm shows us his heart in a brief note out of a letter he wrote. and I'm going to share that with you, but get this. This man wrote 1,200 poems, many of which found their way into religious publications. Many of his songs became hymns. And this particular song sprouted in popularity when in 1954 it became a regular song in the Billy Graham Crusades. Now listen to what he wrote to a friend in 1941, and you'll catch catch this man's heart. My income has not been large at any time due to impaired health in the earlier years which has followed me until now. Although I must not fail to record here the unfailing faithfulness of a covenant-keeping God and that He has given me many wonderful displays of His providing care for which I am filled with astonishing gratefulness. And that's the heart of a man who believed he was being called and was called in Methodist ministry and had to give it up for life insurance. But he still said, God has been with me all the way. And the realization of God's faithfulness has been the testimony of many a child of God. And in the passages of Scripture that inspired this passage, this song, we're going to find some beautiful affirmations about who God is and what He wants to do in our lives. So I'm going to ask you to stand... In honor of the word of God and listen to, to these passages. Beautiful words. Out of a book, you may not know the meaning of the word lamentation, but it's a cry and a song of distress. So we're going to hear about faithfulness in a song, in a book that is called I'm Crying Out Loud, Lord. Okay? Lamentations 3, 18 through 26. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, "The Lord is my portion; therefore, I will wait for Him." The Lord is good to those who hope in Him, uh, to the ones who seek Him. It is good to wait patiently, quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And then James 1.17 Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. God bless the reading of His Word. You may be seated. Folks, the conviction behind this song and the passages we've looked at and read is that God's faithfulness is without end. So I want us to come together and look at some precious promises that has spoken not only to the heart of Thomas Chisholm, but to untold millions of people throughout centuries. This is a powerful, powerful word God has for us today. And the very first promise that we look at, God is worthy of our trust. God is worthy of our trust. And these two men of God separated by centuries, had the same message to bring. Jeremiah and Jer- uh, James both affirmed that God was faithful and unchanging. James put it this way. You know how when the sun moves across the sky and shadows change, James says, that's not your God. He doesn't change like shifting shadows. There are there is no turning of shadow with him. He is the same always and forever. Jeremiah said, his love and his compassions are new every morning. In other words, they were fresh, they were alive, they weren't static. It wasn't something that God did thousands of years ago. Every day he is filled with compassion and love. What these men were saying that we need to hear today was that what God has been, he will always be. And that gives us hope and something to hold on to. A trust, a faithfulness that we can call to mind. Lloyd C. Douglas, author of The Robe and one time governor of Arizona, used to talk about a man he used to like to visit. He was an old man who taught violin lessons. He liked going because the guy was one of these dispensers of practical wisdom And the things he had to say really, really spoke to Douglas's heart. So one day, he goes into the man's shop and he's bursting. What is he going to share with me today? And he says, what's the good news for today? The old man put down his violin, walked over to a tuning fork suspended from the ceiling and struck it sharply. And then he said, that's the good news. That is, my friend, the musical note A. It was A all day yesterday. It will be A next week. And it will be A in a thousand years to come. Now that may not mean much to you. But all these folks who do our music. We don't like the idea of notes changing. Now we can progress from note to note. But we want A to be A. So what James is saying. What Jeremiah is saying, what that old man with a tuning fork is really saying, in a world of changes, the promise of stability in a relationship with God fills us with joy. The idea that I can trust Him, He's not going to change on me, becomes powerfully real for us. Now I will freely admit, my bow tie may not be in fashion next year. They're popular right now, again, but I will tell you, whether it's fashionable or not, I will dust them off from time to time, because I really like bow ties. A much more somber note. The good relationships that we have with friends, and sometimes family, don't always last. Most of us in this building, you've lived enough of life that you have felt the sting of losing a friend. Something happened, an unkind word was said, and those friendships break. And many of you have felt the pain of when family members, for whatever reason, start pulling apart from each other. We know that. We understand that. But hear the word carefully. God's love will always endure. You've heard me say many a time, I wish I could say I invented the phrase. I've known it for so long in my life I don't know the first person I heard. You can never do anything that will make God love you more. And you will never do anything that makes God love you less. His love for you is sure. It is true. And it holds on. And it calls. Even when we're off in the far country, God keeps speaking to our hearts. So, let us rejoice that God will never fail us. He will never turn away from us. Don Francisco. is one of my favorite Christian singer-songwriters. Uh, he was in the 70s and he's still singing today. Uh, uh, some of the most beautiful thoughts If you've ever heard He's Alive, you know that song. Uh, he wrote a very, very hauntingly poignant song, simply titled Walking Wounded. Listen to it, the words. She's one of the walking wounded. The bleeding doesn't show behind the wall around her heart where none's allowed to go. It's been this way for so long now, she can't remember when. She could still hope for tomorrow. So instead, she just pretends. When she thinks no one can see her, sometimes she'll crack the door until she feels the fear again and locks it like before. Alone behind the windows, curtained with her pride, she'll once again embrace her pain and turn away inside. To give away her heart before had been her first mistake. She knows she shouldn't doubt him now. There's just so much to take at stake. And still he keeps on calling. But she pretends she doesn't hear. He longs to touch and heal her. But she never lets him near. She's one of the walking wounded. She's been searching for so long. Deep inside she's hoping all the fears she feels are wrong. Maybe he can give her all the love she's been denied. Maybe it will be alright if she lets him come inside. She thinks perhaps it might be alright to let him come inside. Folks, for anyone who has tasted the love of God, who has come to understand that God's love is bound to his children forever and ever, we know the safest, most wonderful thing we can do is let him inside. Because when all the world's changing and love fails in so many ways, God's love will remain the same because God is worthy of our trust. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Our next promise. God offers us forgiveness. In lamentations in third chapter verses 18 through 22, the prophet goes through what's happening. And he was reminding his readers, when he's speaking to them, he's written these words, Jeremiah reminded his readers that while they deserved God's wrath, God offered them grace. The book of Lamentations is a short book. It's only five chapters long. And everything in that book that precedes the passage we read and everything in that book that follows the passage we read has a very clear theme. Judgment. Judah has sinned against God blatantly, willingly, refusing to hear the prophets who are calling her back, refusing to change their hearts Judah has sinned against God, the Lord, her God, and judgment was coming. It was going to be a terrible and thorough judgment. There's a reason this book is called Lamentations. Because Jeremiah is in pain and he's weeping for his people and he's afraid and he wants them to come. And he knows they're not. And it's very clear the judgment that's coming is justified. Judah... Was to blame. And so this sin, sinfulness throughout the book brings a sense of hopelessness. Jeremiah started in verse 18, the first verse I read My splendor is gone, and all that I hoped in the Lord. At that point, he said, I've lost all hope. It's over, it's wit- done, the judgment's come. Nothing will ever change. I've given up. But then, he remembers. And what he remembers is that God is a God of mercy. And the prophet knew that God could make His people whole. Now how did he know that God was a merciful God? He said, He hasn't consumed us. He hasn't destroyed us God could have wiped us out as a people, obliterated us completely, but He hasn't. Yes, judgment was going to come. They were going into Babylon, but He's saying, but God will hold on to His people. There will be a remnant who will love Him, who will serve Him, and He's going to bring them home. These compassions that are new and real and fresh never stop. So even though He could say to Judah, you've brought this on yourself, He tells them, there is forgiveness that can come. And let's face it, in this world, this forgiveness is quite surprising for many. In fact, I've known people, people have told me straight to my face, God can never forgive me. I've had people say, Danny, you don't know what I've done. He can't forgive me. I'm too far gone. It's too bad. It's too terrible. John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, and yes, we will be looking at Amazing Grace, lived a really rough life before he became a Christian. He was actually a slave trader. And at one point was taken captive himself and made a slave for a while. He lived a really rough and tumble life. But one day he was talking to a man about heaven. Now the man happened to be an unbeliever. So he's going to have a little fun at this poor ignorant preacher's expense. He's going to put him on the spot. And he tells him, okay, well tell me, what's going to be the most surprising thing you see when you finally get to heaven? And Newton answered, thought about it, and, and Gave him a, a surprise. What would surprise me? Remember, not a nice guy before the Lord. He said, there are going to be three great wonders in heaven that will surprise me. The first will be to see many people there whom I didn't expect to see. Now we know exactly what he's talking about. There are people that we have known in our lives that are too far gone that's the way we see them they are too far gone they they're never going to change they're never going to come back they have turned their face to god and will never come in and newton says i'm going to see some of those people in heaven and it's going to surprise me my second his second surprise is a little bit painful i will be surprised that i not to find many churchgoers whom I did expect to see. Folks, this echoes a passage of Scripture I've talked about a lot in the 12th and now the 13th year I've been with you. Jesus will tell a group of people who said, Lord, we've done great things in Your name. We were... Yeah, essentially, we went to church... We pray, we did everything we even cast out demons in your name and Jesus will look at them and he will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Not you started out well, but you blew it. So I'm kicking you out. I never even knew you. People who are going through the motions trying to earn their way into heaven, but will not submit their hearts and their wills to God. So yeah, we get this. There are going to be some folks you'd expect to see and they're not there. And then this, the third and greatest of all will to be to find myself there knowing what I know of the wickedness of my own heart. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Folks, we need to understand this. We need to see this. In Christ, even though we do not deserve it, we can find the cleansing we need. Jesus can truly sweep the garbage out of our lives. And the fact that He hasn't destroyed us shows He wants to forgive. There's a lot of things wrong with America today and we could spend a whole lot of time complaining about everything horribly going wrong. But I still have hope. Because we're still here. And there's still that possibility of God moving in a mighty way to awaken His church and have an impact on this land. The truth is, He hasn't destroyed us. And folks, what He has offered us, those of us who know Him, who have trusted Him, who have given our lives over to Him, He's going to offer the very same unfailing love to all those who will receive Him by faith even to all those we think are beyond His reach. So, we need to open ourselves up to the surprising forgiveness of God. I am quite certain I'm not the only person here who has stumbled over their own sinfulness and come to the place of thinking there's no hope for me. There have been times in my life when I have failed the Lord that I, I really haven't found strong words to say I'm sorry enough. But when we fall, instead of wallowing in that guilt and, and self-pity, we need to turn to God and trust the One who says, I will cleanse from all unrighteousness if you confess. We need to know when we hear that whisper of the enemy in our ear, you're not a real believer, A real believer would never do that. We can't let him think that we are unreachable. We need to remember what Christ accomplished in His death and resurrection and rejoice that He has made us whole. Forgiveness is available. And folks, it doesn't matter what you've done. David committed adultery and murder and God forgave him. Paul attacked the church and tried to destroy it. And God forgave him. There's a forgiveness that is offered. And Then our third truth. Promise. God brings hope into our lives. Again, after saying, My hope is gone. I am in misery. Jeremiah returns to hope. And in the last three verses of this text. The prophet of God said it was good to hope in God and wait for his salvation. And here's a little fun note. That word hope and that word wait in this text, in the original language, it's the same word. But there are two little shades of meaning here. A hope that says, I I believe God is real and true, and because I believe He is real and true, in my hope, I'm going to wait on His timing. Now, in all honesty, Jeremiah was not always at that place of hope. In fact, verse 18, he said, my hope was gone. There were times he lamented and seemed to think all hope was gone and would never return. In the book that bears his name, Jeremiah, there are several passages of Scripture that are called the complaints of Jeremiah. And if you've never read the book, I encourage you to read it because you're going to be shocked. That this man of God has the nerve to call God out on multiple occasions. In fact, in the text we'll look at right now, the strongest of the complaints, Jeremiah, well, I'll let you hear it. It's Jeremiah 20 verses 7 through 9. This is the man of God. He says, O Lord, you deceived me and I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. So, so get this. He's saying, God, you deceived me. You misled me. Now, in all honesty, if you read the book, you'll find out God told Jeremiah that was going to happen. He didn't lie. Jeremiah is expressing his feelings, his pain, and his agony. Much of the way, a lot of the Psalms will have this same woe is me, there's no hope for me. Jeremiah is saying, you misled me. You made me become a prophet. You just overpowered me and I didn't even have a choice. And because of that, I've been preaching judgment for a long time now. And you haven't fulfilled your end of the bargain. You haven't brought the judgment. And now all of these people that you've had me talking to are mocking me. They're ridiculing me. They want to get rid of me. They would like to kill me. I will share very very briefly one of my moments of complaint. We went to New Orleans in 1993 for me to do the prerequisites to do the doctoral program. All three of us, because my wife was involved in the decision and my daughter, we all prayed about it, we all believed this is what was going to happen. And the first year in New Orleans was one of the worst years of my life in terms of everything that was happening. Uh, I was assured the seminary, oh, you'll find a church in no time. 14 years of experience, you're going to get called up. I didn't even get to preach for six months. That was very painful for me. Our income was devastated. I finally found a job as a, a security guard at a condominium. And my mother freaked out about that. I said, it's not the kind that I wear a gun. I just let little old people in after the doors are locked. But it was a horrible time. And we we were having, I'm talking with creditors and saying, please give us some time. We're working really hard and all this. And one moment, everything that could, well, no, I'm not going to say that because a lot more could have happened. But almost everything that I thought could happen to go wrong in one day happened. And your pastor literally called out to God what Jeremiah was saying here. This is the thanks I get I'm doing what you wanted me to do, and this is it. At the moment, I didn't think I shared something with Jeremiah, but I did. Now, I want you to listen carefully to verse 9. Because in verses 7 and 8, Jeremiah is saying, I've had it. I'm done. I'm not going to do this anymore. Then he writes, But if I say I will not mention him or speak anymore in his name, His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. Jeremiah is saying in his pain, I want to quit. But even if I tried to quit, never to do what you've called me to do again, you have put a fire deep inside of me. And I have to. I have to keep going. I have to keep preaching. I have to remain faithful. Because it is part of who I am now. And in our text, the trek that started off, my splendor is gone and everything I hoped in the Lord, Jeremiah expresses his pain. And it was very powerful. Listen to the way he described what was going on in him personally? He's already said Judas under judgment, but he said he described himself as homeless. That's what wandering means. And it's not hard to understand why he would consider himself homeless. Everybody hated him. They didn't want him around. They would have liked to kill him. They did try different things to, to get him to shut up. They didn't want him, and everywhere he looked, he had no one to be. A comrade, no one to love and care for him. And then he said it was like I ate something poisonous. There's a bitterness in me. And that word calls up to mind the the herb wormwood that could make someone feel very deathly ill. It's bitterness coming from without into my system. And then he said the hardness that I'm facing, all of the harshness, is like gall riding up inside of me. So, do I remember my distress? When it says, I will remember in the NIV, the thrust of the original text is, of course I remember my distress. But then, this thought comes to mind. The thought of God's faithfulness, compassion, His love. So Jeremiah, in the midst of all of that pain, says, The Lord is my portion. Robert Loren has pointed out many others. If you're wondering what does that mean? He's my portion. It points back to the time of Canaan going in. Israelites going into Canaan to take the land. And God allotted different portions of the land to different tribes. You take that area and you take it and you hold it. All of the tribes except the tribe of Levi. This is what God told the priestly tribe. I will be your portion. You don't have to capture a land. You don't have to keep that land. I will be your portion. I will supply you everything you need to thrive and live. And when Jeremiah says, the Lord is my portion, he is saying, I lost hope, but now I realize the Lord is my only hope. Jeremiah was certain. One day, God would vindicate Himself. One day, God will restore His children. But until He does, I'm going to wait on Him. And I'm going to hope in Him. And He tells His people, it'd be a good thing for you to do too. The one who waits on God, it's a good thing. The one who hopes in the Lord is good. Why? Because God is good to those who hope in Him, Jeremiah says. Why? Why? Philip Ryken looks at the reality here. He says, there are times when the only thing a sufferer can do is wait for God. But waiting is good because God is worth waiting for. His salvation will come in due course, provided one surrenders to his will and to his timing. What all of this is saying, into the darkest moments of our lives, God calls us. On us to hold on to our hope. B.L. Tanner pointed out, God is not just faithful. God is faithful in the toughest of times. And Albert Martins said, points out, a lot of times when we sing the song Great is Thy Faithfulness, it's a song of celebration and joy, but the passage that gave birth to it was a passage of pain and hardship. And he says when tragedy strikes and lives are prematurely snuffed out, those who truly believe God, who are anchored on the bedrock of God's revelation, can still sing this song. Because hope can replace despair. Throughout God's word, he tells us, you're not alone, I'm with you. Jesus put it beautifully as he's going to send to the Father, I will be with you until the very end of the age. And that doesn't mean at the end of the age he quits being with us. At the end of the age, we'll go to be with him. Throughout his word, he declares, I will be your strength. He has to tell Joshua on more than one occasion, don't be afraid, I am with you, I will be your strength. I won't fail you. Throughout his word, we find that God sustains us with his grace. Paul says, I have learned whenever I am weak, he is strong. Because His grace is sufficient. So friends, today we have a hope that will one day be realized fully. One day. Jeremiah was looking out to the future. God's going to restore His people. One day, God's faithfulness will be real and alive because our salvation will be made complete. Whether we go to be with Him in death or He comes back to get us we will be with God and the, sour, the sorrows of life will be left behind. We will be made complete in Him. We will see our Lord face to face and know it's been worth it all. Now in a series of sermons that are looking at hymns, you probably shouldn't be surprised. I will be making a lot of reference to music. And I just recently discovered a hymn, a song written by Don Wirtz uh, entitled, Finally Home. Now, I had heard uh, or read a snippet of it, but I actually Googled, found the words, found the song, listened to it, and it's now one of my favorites. Listen to what he wrote. When engulfed by the terror of tempestuous seas, unknown ways before you roam, at the end of doubt and peril is eternity, though fear and conflict seize your soul. But just think, of stepping on shore and finding it heaven, of touching a hand and finding its gods, of breathing new air and finding it celestial, of waking up in glory and finding it home. That's our hope, folks. At the end of all of life's pain, our God awaits us. So today, rejoice with me. Rejoice with me that we can say of God, great is thy faithfulness. He has promised he will never change. He has promised us a forgiveness that is real. He has promised us a hope that will endure. Today, it's my prayer for you. that You will reaffirm Your love for God. Today, my prayer is that you will take a moment to say thank you, God. And in spite of my faithlessness, you prove faithful always. And today, will you ask Him and help me to become faithful to you and all that you want for my life? Right now, as you bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord, let God Almighty hear your words of love. And as we go to Him in prayer, let us ask Him that when we leave this place, we will leave not only with a firmer understanding of who He is and what He is in our lives, but we will have a much more firm commitment of sharing with those who don't yet know Him, that there is a faithfulness that can be found in God.